Hello. Hi, everyone. Uh, thanks for coming to this, uh, what is it, a Tuesday, what, no, dry Tuesday morning in BAFTA. Um, very interesting topic, though. Children and virtual reality. Um, what's good and what's a bit scary about it? We've got some amazing guests here who've done lots of research. And there is this uh, wonderful booklet which has the research in it, which you'll get a copy of, um, I think, for free, which is even better, uh, at the end of this. So, um, yeah, thanks for coming. We're gonna, I'm going to ask everyone to introduce themselves. Uh, and our esteemed panellists are going to do a short presentation each. Then we'll have a bit of a chat about relevant stuff, not just a chat. And then we'll open it up for some questions as well. And this work will be continuing as well. So do, you know, if you're interested, do keep in touch. Uh, so I'm Dave Ranyard. I run a VR and AR studio <coughs> in West London. Um, uh, and I'm moderating this. But I'm going to hand over to each of our panellists for a, a couple of minutes each to introduce yourself. So Mark, please uh, take it away. I'm going to go first. So I'm Mark Goodchild. I'm uh, head of digital content strategy and product at Turner. So you'll know Turner from uh, Cartoon Network <laughs> and Boomerang for in the UK. But we're also part of the family with uh, people like CNN, who've been doing a lot in the VR space. Um, and we'll be talking a little bit later on about some of the stuff that we've been doing. <coughs> I'm Faisal Mushtaq. I'm a psychologist based at the University of Leeds. Um, and we've been doing a bit of research around the potential health and safety impact uh, on users um, under virtual reality. Sorry, a bit of a mic problem. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about some of the uh, potential sort of problems of using virtual reality uh, with a particular focus on visual deficits and, uh, uh, and the impact on children's development. Hello, uh, my name is Dan Tucker. I'm a freelance uh, VR producer. Um, I'm also the curator of something called Alternate Realities, which is the interactive and immersive program within Sheffield Dockfest, which is an international documentary film festival. We have an exhibition of uh, VR documentary. We show 26 pieces every year and have a summit dedicated to the art and challenges of interactive and immersive storytelling. Hi, I'm Dylan. Um, I work uh, for two places. I work for Dubbit, uh, which I will tell you about in a moment, as a researcher. So we've been undertaking this research that you'll get to hear about. And I also work um, as uh, a senior tutor at the Royal College of Art. Um, and all my academic focus has been on sort of the crossover between designing uh, digital products for children and child development. Uh, so, yeah, as I was saying, I work for Dubbit. So, uh, Dubbit is a company based in Leeds and various other locations around the world. Um, we create content primarily uh, for children. We also undertake uh, strategies for bigger content companies, um, and uh, we undertake research as part of that process as well. So in relation to VR, as across all of Dubbit's work, uh, we sort of have this three-prong approach. Uh, where we undertake research, we also make uh, and design content, um, and we also have a VR, VR platform where content can be hosted in one place so that's easy uh, to find the content as well. Um, so in, I've been involved in researching children's use of digital products, um, particularly, of course, iPads and uh, everything else that's come before that. Um, and one of the things that I've looked at always is the kind of historical ways in which children have come into contact with media. 
So one of the things that's really interested me is uh, how, and before VR, every technology that's come out has always been promoted as being beneficial for children. So we've always said, you know, here's a television, you can learn from it, you know, put your child in front of the television. Uh, the same, you know, buy your child um, a home computer, it's also going to help them with uh, education. We've put iPads in front of them, started to make educational apps. But for the first time uh, VR has come out, we've sort of questioned it from the start as to whether children should potentially not be using it at all. Um, so, of course, this is both positive and negative. I think the positive side of it is that because children are following and slower uh, in, in this particular technology, we really have a chance to kind of undertake some research and find out ahead of time uh, what we want the technology to be for children, what the potential impacts might be on children, which is kind of different than what's gone before. Okay, so just a quick overview um, of the research. Um, so the research has taken place in four stages. So uh, Dubit runs something called uh, Dubit Trends, where we, I'll show you in a moment, we put out sort of large uh, surveys uh, to, to children and also their parents for younger children to find out exactly what media consumption looks like in their homes. Um, and so we've been able to pull out sort of uh, large-scale data from that to sort of see the impact um, of VR emerging in their lives. And then we started to do this fairly small-scale project uh, looking at um, children's in engagement and interaction with VR. So we gave them a range of content, a range of devices, um, in order to understand what engaged them, how did they use it, you know, what did they like, what didn't they like, um, and then we worked with uh, Fassel, who will talk a bit in a moment, uh, and other people, professors at the University of Leeds, to look at the health and safety issues around VR. In particular, we were focused on vision and balance, so trying to understand how VR might potentially impact um, on their sight or on their balance after play. And then the last phase, which is kind of why we're here today, um, is uh, an ethnographic part where we will go into homes, we'll see the place of VR in children's everyday lives, how it fits in with you know, the schooling, the other kinds of gaming tech that they use, for example. So we're really keen to kind of link up with other people who are doing research in this area as well so that we can kind of make this last stage come together with what other people are doing as well. Uh, so here's just a quick overview of Dubit Trends. So we collect data um, from these different locations around the world, which allows us to build up a picture over time of how different particular types of tech, for example, come into their lives. So one of the things that we became aware of from this data is that um, just the awareness of VR between the two waves of data collection, so from the autumn to the spring, has really increased. So um, in particular, the American stats are always quite interesting to us because they tend to uh, adopt things much faster than the UK. So we can see that what was uh, relatively uh, not unknown, but a, just a small kind of niche group of children, it, it, it's changing as we know. So we looked at the, the Vive, the Oculus, and then also the, the cheaper cardboard and a range of content that went from a job simulator where you're sort of uh, helping serve robots in the future and doing uh, regular kind of everyday jobs for them. Uh, Google Earth VR, which I'm sure you're all familiar with. 
Um, the blue, which is an underwater uh, game where you kind of get to stand on a shipwreck and look out and see the fish and things floating around. Fairy Garden, which is something that Dubbit made, uh, uh, where you get to kind of go up on a beanstalk and look out um, across this fairy world. And then Adventure Time, which is uh, obviously made by uh, Turner, and Mark will come back and talk a bit about that later as well. Okay, so in terms of, so we found out some interesting stuff. So in terms of onboarding, uh, when children came in, uh, we asked them, you know, have you tried VR before? Um, you know, what was it that you liked or didn't like? So most of the children hadn't tried VR, I would say, but nearly all of them had heard of it. And a lot of them had been watching VR uh, on YouTube. So they wanted, they already wanted to have the opportunity to go into VR. They were spending large periods of time watching other people play on YouTube. Uh, in particular, Job Simulator was one that was popular to watch. Um, so as they went in, a lot of children said, you know, whoa, this is strange. So it wasn't like a, a, a bad strange, it was an excited strange, but uh, they would describe it as things like, it's like going into a cartoon, or it's like uh, being in a comic, things like that. Um, <clears throat> but uh, for the children who had tried uh, the YouTube, seen the experience on YouTube, they were much more confident in going into that experience. They knew what it was gonna look like, they knew what was expected of them, and so um, they were less hesitant and able to interact with the, with the content. So this sort of suggests that if you're making VR content for children, then one of the potential ways to go forward would be to make sure you get some of that content up on YouTube. Um, and if children hadn't seen YouTube, then we were taking time to explain to children what it might look like in advance and what they could expect. Um, when children were within, within the game, um, so here's an example here, um, of somebody who had watched it, Rylan, who had watched the VR content on YouTube. He knew exactly how, what was expected of him. He went in and started playing with it straight away and with ease. Um, one of the things that would make it easier for children is to kind of prep them into going in that. So uh, there's a picture here of uh, Andy, who's at a We Are VR, and Andy was really great with the children, kind of taking time to say, I'm gonna give you these controllers, they're gonna look like your hands in this game. Um, we're gonna put a headset on you. If you don't like it, close your eyes. Uh, then we can take the headset off you and things like that. So uh, one of the things that I'm continually come up against um, is people asking, well, the, the, the high end, uh, headsets are constantly strapped to children's faces. This is a bad thing, right? Um, but one of the things that we found is, you know, why is it worse to have something strapped to your face when you can close your eyes and take it off? And I've also seen kind of children with the cardboard devices jamming them <laughs> between their, their eyes and the walls so that they don't have to hold them. So this is also something um, to be aware of, that children are kind of sort of propping them up on the table and moving their heads around because they want their hands free, and I'll show you why in a minute. Um, children felt much more comfortable going into um, content that was within a context that they were familiar with. So if it was directly related to their own lives, 
then they would know what was expected of them. They would be able to play around with that narrative, um, likewise. And then it kind of diminished, it diminished down. So potentially something like going under the sea, for example, was something that they would be less familiar with how they should act. So uh, uh, and what was expected of them, what they might come across in the sea. So they might be more hesitant with that. Again, not necessarily a bad thing. But it's worth being aware that they might need additional onboarding and things to do that. The only exception with these things were if they'd already heard of the environment and the context. So for example, all the kids that we uh, were with had heard of Hollywood. They'd never been there, but they got really excited to go there. So we had lots of kids sort of posing in front of the Hollywood sign, you know, saying, hey, mom, take a selfie. I'm in Hollywood. So. Um, in those type of settings, the, the unknown was OK. Um, this is a sort of rough drawing I did of one child's first couple of minutes um, within a VR experience. So when you watch adults in VR, they go in, they take their time, they adjust, they move slowly, they look left and right. It's worth bearing in mind that children don't do that. They're all over the place. So the number of times I've been hit in the face whilst trying to uh, uh, do this research is, is huge. And they're kind of spinning around and looking up and down. And if you step back, it's almost like they're doing some form of contemporary dance. And so, again, this is interesting because if you're developing content, then you need to think about how might you allow children to adjust perhaps slower to the, to the space or where you might place objects within that space so that they don't go off balance immediately, trying to reach around for things. Um, and that leads on to the, the next point. So when there was a disconnect between what was expected of a child's physical movements and what they would do in reality, it was very hard for them to do that action. So there's a child here, you can see he's trying to use a whisk and he actually had to whisk kind of with his arm like this. And for children, as, as with adults, you know, you would tend to whisk with a bowl <coughs> much, much closer. So performing that action when it was kind of different than how you would do it in everyday life um, was more difficult. Um, again, children wanted um, to understand where they are. So um, we've, you've probably already heard conversations about this idea of cognitive self. You know, how do children understand the difference between virtual reality and reality? Um, so for example, all the children really liked Google Earth. They were excited to go and explore places. But for those of you who have been in it, you will know that you kind of are floating above the Earth when you go in. And all the children were kind of like, whoa, where am I? Why have they done this to me? Why didn't they just? build a little platform for me to stand on and look down at. So that idea of wanting to be grounded was really important. So uh, again, this is not a plug for Dubbit, although it will sound like it. But in Fairy Garden, we designed that when children went up to a height, they were standing on the beanstalk um, leaf. And, and that made children feel much more comfortable because they would look down, they would see the leaf, and then they would look out at, at the bigger drop and enjoy it. So uh, yeah, so that, that's also another point worth bearing in mind. Um, sorry, this is uh, another drawing of me experimenting with things. So um, 
I'm really thinking already about whether the future of VR is actually a mixed reality experience. So there's something that crosses physical and, and virtual. So even when content wasn't designed to be a mixed reality experience, children were experiencing it in that way. So uh, we had uh, on the demo children going in again to Google Earth. They come into the space bit. They're running around the room with their tongue, tongue out uh, and at one point actually licking one of the researchers' shoes because <laughs> they want to know what the planets taste like. And <laughs> as an adult, I want to do that as well, but I don't. <laughs> but, but again, so that kind of full immersion um, of wanting to feel and touch I think it's something that we can see anyway in child development and children's uh, play in general, but that's very much there in VR as well. Um, they were very, very social. So this idea that VR might be a solitary thing where you're in a closed headset, um, this completely wasn't the case. So children were enacting stories for their friends who they were with. Their friends who were with were acting a little bit like these sort of haptic helpers where they would come up and push them slightly or, you know, pull their hair slightly or try to add to their experience of what they were doing in VR. So again, you know, how can VR be more of a social experience where kids are naturally going that way anyway is also something worth thinking about. So, uh, yeah, this is uh, an image here from uh, Job Simulator, children loving to go in and just make um, a huge, great big mess. <laughs> And uh, again, so children really like the content best uh, when it, except for Google Earth, when it had uh, less realistic graphics. Um, and this relates to other research, as we know, that allows you to kind of transpose your own stories when it looks less real. So if you go into an environment here, the robot could be, uh, you know, your friend, it could be male, it could be female, it can be angry or sad. And uh, it allowed for this kind of uh, uh, storytelling in the space. So, yeah, going into the space, setting fire to a menu, running it underwater, blending the fire extinguisher, throwing fireworks at, at robots, and really going into this particular space. And again, just to prove that I am as childish as the kids in, in the project, um, I remember my first time in, um, in Dubbit of using uh, VR. In, was in this content as well, and I just went in and started throwing everything around because it's about being able to do what you can't do in real life. And then I could hear some people outside saying, what is she doing? And then I was like, oh, that's right. I'm in this, in this company. I should tidy up, tidy up. Um, so children were very much around exploring those boundaries as well. So uh, what next? That's part of um, why we're here today. So we have a, a closed session after this session today to explore, you know, what are the remaining questions for, for industry, for academics, you know, what do we, for, for parents, what is it that we really need to, to know and explore next? Um, these are some things that interest me personally that have come out of the research. So how can we encourage social play? Um, so for part of the research, we gave out this headset here with uh, the Adventure Time uh, dog, is it Jake? <laughs> Jake on it. And children were instantly taken with this. You know, before you've even got into the VR, you're already taking on a kind of character. And so uh, for the children's media conference, we started to explore with children there, you know, what would it be like if you can design your own headsets and then you can also potentially play with 
somebody offline as well as, uh, sorry, not offline, in the virtual world or out of the virtual world in this kind of role play way, which is very uh, natural to, to the way in which children play in general. Um, also, I'm really keen to say, as always, with, you know, how can we create spaces in VR where children are not just consumers of content, but they are active participants within that content, or they can use that content to create and make and design themselves. So I think there's a tendency to create a sort of passive content for children and really sort of keen to throw that in, in the mix that we need to keep in mind as well, you know, how can we keep children uh, developing in there. So I've been involved in a new project as well that will allow children to add to the design of VR content um, by creating a physical object which is then tracked into the virtual world so they can make their own physical objects and then play with them in the virtual world. So again, exploring ways in which children can make and create, but also how they can be, be social within VR as well. So again, we've been uh, uh, playing around with uh, designing a very simple piece of uh, content for VR that uh, we will then, children will then create phys physical objects using maker spaces. Um, and then we will add the HTC Vive Tracker to take that into this particular environment. Um, again, uh, so this is a, a doll from a company called Vaikai based in Berlin. Uh, it's a digital interactive game and it started to work on a project looking at how children create environments for the physical doll and then how they might do the same thing uh, within Tiltbrush. Uh, one of the things that particularly interests me is we already know that children choose the best content for a platform. So just because your Adventure Time and children like Adventure Time, it doesn't necessarily mean that they will automatically pick up your VR game. So kids will say, okay, what, what does a comic book look like? What is the best thing a comic book can be? What is the best thing a physical game can be? What is the best thing an app can be? What is the best thing virtual reality can be? So not necessarily can your brand just carry something across uh, and make it popular within virtual reality as well. You really need to think about what is it that makes that particular experience on that particular platform uh, of value to children. And that's it from me. Um, So as I said, I'm uh, looking after the digital content strategy for uh, Turner, and primarily um, across uh, children's uh, pro uh, programs and channels, so Boomerang, uh, Cartoon Network, Cartoonito, uh, across EMEA. Um, and we got involved with uh, virtual reality quite early on. Um, my colleagues in, in the US were doing an Oculus, um, an Oculus Rift uh, project which was uh, Magic Man's Head, which you saw briefly there. Um, and uh, last year, uh, the team at uh, Turner in the UK were involved with um, a project uh, around, again, around Adventure Time called ICU. What's also interesting about it is it skews older. We've got quite a, a, a long cohort of kids who, you know, who've grown up with Adventure Time. And so it seemed like it was the right property for us to do some experimentation and test the market, not least because of the age restrictions that were on a lot of the uh, early uh, players. Um, so and I'll talk a little bit about that in a second. So Adventure Time 
uh, ICU was a cardboard project. So Google Cardboard, still the most uh, widely available VR headset. I think I've heard quotes that it's now about 20 million headsets around, around the world. Um, they are a piece of cardboard. Who knows whether they're being used regularly, whether they get, they, a lot of companies have gifted them out. Uh, a lot of newspapers have done sort of stunts where they give them out. Um, and for, the, for a long time, it was probably the first experience that a lot of people had, because you put your own phone in them, um, and then you can uh, experience a, a, an entry-level VR experience. The reason we went with cardboard was slightly different, was because um, a lot of the, the high-end hardware were very unsure about whether it was appropriate for kids, so a lot of them automatically slapped 13 plus on them. I think digging into it, and we've spoken to quite a lot of the companies, that was more of a, uh, a get-out-of-jail card rather than it, based on any scientific research. And cardboard, for various reasons, is a lot uh, easier to, to use. Um, not least because you have to hold it up to your head. And unless, uh, as Dylan says, you're sort of that inclined that you're going to wedge yourself up against a wall, you know, your arms get tired after a while. But even then, because we were in the early days of this, we wanted to do this right. So we, we, we read all the literature at the time, um, and we also built in some, um, some of our own safety mechanics. So we put in timeouts in there. We did a lot on the onboarding, and we did a lot of user testing with children. But intentionally, it was designed to be a, a, a short, snackable experience. So when you're sort of one of the first um, producers out the block doing something around children's and cartoons around VR, you know, there's a lot of learning that, goes, uh, that comes out of it. And one of the things we wanted to understand was actually, um, you know, it's called virtual reality, but we're in a, a very fantasy world. And you know, would virtual fantasy with 2D characters with very, or created into very sort of primitive 3D models, would that keep the illusion? Um, I think it's one of the things that tested very well, that actually it's not all about that uh, actually feeling that you are in a physical location. Um, but we also wanted to know a lot more about um, actually how children were responding. Um, we said, as I said, that we kept it very short uh, play at the moment, but if this becomes a major medium going forward, we want to know what's the appropriate way to do stuff. As I said, we went with cardboard, and I was actually trying to find... Uh, cardboard is one of the few devices which has a younger age limit. It's seven plus, but last night when I was looking for to try and find the actual label, I couldn't find it anywhere. And this is the actual product safety information that Google provide. Um, you'll see there, cardboard is not for use by children without adult supervision. And I think that's probably where we're at at the moment, is there's a lot of the industry is just basically... Uh, uh, devolving that responsibility to parents. So, like Dave, you know, lots of people who work in the industry are testing it out on their kids. I think we're probably being relatively responsible about it. Um, but that's why we were very keen to team up with uh, research organisations and uh, academics who could actually tell us about some of the things that were going on. Um, at the time, 2015, the only research we could find was this uh, was a, a questionnaire done by Touchstone Research, who are an American company, I believe. And kids at the time, aged 10 to 17, very small sample, 500 kids and teens. 79 had heard of virtual reality. 68% when probed revealed an understanding. And 47 know some or a lot about VR. Most of that, then as now, was through watching YouTube clips of other people experiencing VR. So it's not as widespread as we think. 
And then they said uh, it was cool, off the charts, um, really excited about it, and super interested. So there's definitely an appetite there. But there were also some concerns. So this is back in 2015. It might cause health issues. Headsets are too heavy. Might cause people to hurt themselves, bump into walls, fall down, etc. And an addiction to VR. And those are themes you keep hearing repeated. And it's really hard to find solid evidence for or against these. So now in 2017, this is what the um, VR fund says the European VR landscape looks like. You know, there's a lot of people involved in this space, but still very little being done around children's research. And that's why we as Turner wanted to get involved in this project, but we're also looking further afield to see what can be done to actually just validate the thoughts we already have, make sure we build this stuff better by design, and actually make sure we don't kill an industry before it's had a chance to grow because we didn't do our due diligence first. Um, as someone who's been in the tech industry for a long time, uh, but also a TV producer before, I definitely believe technology can be a force for good for kids. I do think there's huge potential with VR. But, and this is where I slightly disagree with Dylan. Every new advance in technology has had its critics. This is Socrates, who basically told parents that they shouldn't allow their kids to read because they might get ideas about fantasy and actually they need to be rooted in reality. Um, and that has actually happened with radio. I think in the early days of children's television, there was a, uh, a committee who were set uh, of 13 people at the, before, in the BBC who were sat down to decide whether um, television would be a good thing for children. Um, and we're sort of at that space now for, for VR. Um, so what do we need to consider? These are slides uh, taken under Creative Commons, just some uh, trying to find the best illustrative uh, images about what, what people are saying about VR. Uh, with my caption, so nausea. Um, this is one that comes up a lot. Um, it's very interesting. There's a lot, a lot there have been a lot of improvements in VR, and there's a lot of science now behind what's causing the nausea, and I'll talk about that very briefly later on. Um, one thing that is a big cautionary note, and I've heard this said a few times, is that we very, very quickly become sensitised to VR, and you don't, once you've, been, you've used VR a few times, it's very difficult to tell someone else it won't make them sick, because you've lost your <coughs> ability. It's like you've, you've got your sea legs, and now um, telling someone else that they're not going to be sick, um, it's not a defense, and therefore the onboarding becomes really important. How you orient uh, kids, do you tell them to sit down when they first try it? Is your, um, is your VR application going to you know, send them on a roller coaster in the first five minutes? Those things are really important to think through. Uh, eye damage is uh, something that's uh, talked about a lot. I'm, not gonna, I'm gonna gloss over that because that was one of the things we, we wanted to uh, examine in this uh, study, and I think um, Leeds have done some amazing work on this. Um, and poor balance, uh, there's a great video, if you get to see it, of Ronnie O'Sullivan um, playing virtual uh, snooker and he leans over to the table and falls over. I have to admit, I went to uh, a demo, and there was something where there, it was a music uh, VR thing, and there were speakers all around, and I put my hand to lean myself, steady myself on one of the virtual speakers. <laughs> I made a, I'm glad no one filmed that one. Um, that was a, a rogue slide. So, you know, also it's, it's inherently antisocial, um, and uh, there's enough being said already about digital media creating antisocial kids. Causality and correlation are not the same. We are a very risk-averse society. We are putting kids into situations where they 
have less opportunities to be social and play the old-fashioned way? Does VR make that worse? Only if we design it that way, is my, my opinion. Um, and that we end up becoming detached from reality. Um, it is possibly true. You know, there are examples of uh, research that's been done where kids have been asked to go uh, questions about virtual reality and a real-world experience. And then three weeks later, they, they went to a zoo and they saw some animals in a VR uh, zoo. And they get asked about which were the animals that they, um, that they remembered seeing for real. And they, they get them muddled up. So there, are, there is something going on that we need to be think, thought about. And this one is the fascinating one. But this is probably the most scientific of all the research to date. And it's about rats who they put VR goggles on. So I don't know how much it tells us. But what they, what they recognized was that uh, rats were put through a maze, and then they were put through a virtual maze. And in the virtual maze, they had 60% of the neurons shut down um, compared to when they were through, uh, went through a physical maze. So the brain was working in a slightly different way. And we were just talking about this. This is something which is probably we're only just starting to, to tap into. We need to understand how uh, the brain reacts. Addiction haven't found anything on addiction to date, although it is often cited as a, as a problem. And then on the positive side, you've got VR being used for pain control, um, traumatic stress disorder, lots of effort going in the US about this with, um, with veterans uh, and uh, ret returned um, soldiers, uh, dementia care, uh, paraplegic therapy. It's amazing stuff that's going on. Um, and placebo treatment, so using VR as an alternative to, to, to medicine. Uh, phobiotherapy, it goes on. And this chap, Dr. Albert uh, Skip Rizzo, um, he basically runs a medical research centre using VR in medicine. Um, and as you see here, he says it can bring about emotions that can't come out in other ways, and there, you know, and so with all this positive stuff, we have to keep considering that if it has this hugely powerful effect, what are, could be the detrimental effects, and how do we design against them? The brain develops, is continuing to develop until we're 25. I'm way past that, so I don't have to worry anymore, but it does beg the question, maybe it's not just kids, it's older audiences too, and what parts of the brain are being stimulated and fired when we're in VR. I urge you to have a look at this uh, presentation by Dr. Kimberly Vole, who was at GDC last year. So she's both a, uh, a doctorate in AI, she's done a lot of cognition um, studies, but she's also a VR practitioner, which is great. And she works for Fantastic Contraption. And I'll try and get this right. She talks about this thing called perceptual soup. The brain um, is constantly trying to make sense of the world. Uh, it likes a consistent, sensible view of the world. So it takes all the information in and at the same time is discarding information. And actually, that means it's making stuff up a lot of the time and we, it's quite malleable. Um, so you've all seen the, uh, change blind, uh, the um, attention blindness, which is this instance where you know, you're paying attention to the basketball and counting how many times it's been passed around and you miss the gorilla in the room. Um, change blindness, where someone walks past and by the time that board has gone past, uh, the person has changed and the person who's talking to that woman has no idea. They don't spot it. Um, these are all you know, physical phenomenon, which we know, uh, you know the brain is constantly compensating for. Um, and this is, uh, I think it's called an Ames room. 
So that's actually just one room, and um, and you get you can trick the mind into thinking that you know that person's smaller because you've played with uh, perspective. The reason she talks about this stuff is that these are the tools that are now being employed in VR. We're constantly trying to work out how we can trick the mind to make you feel even more that sense of presence, the sense that you're in the room. Oh, sorry, that's fallen off the... And she talks about flow, which is a gaming, uh, discussion, uh, a gaming uh, phenomenon, um, the arousal that you have when you're in the space, and then narrative, all being part of creating this sense of immersion. And at the same time, uh, we have a fidelity contract. So you you, you're creating this illusion that you're in this space, you step onto a, a, um, a virtual plank, and then you see some size uh, 12 Doc Martins, which you'd never wear. And that can break the whole illusion just like that. For some people, these things are, you know, work. Some things they don't, other people, they don't work. And those are the things that we need to be uh, working on all the time because it's what, when you're creating a virtual world, you need to keep that sense of uh, consistency all the way through. Um, and the question for us really is, you know, are kids responding exactly the same? Are they becoming um, sensitized to this? Um, and are there extra things that we need to take into account? So this is from, from our perspective. If you're going to do going to create magic, sorry, the common in the wrong place. If you're going to create magic, you obviously want to do it right. And so for us, this is the starting point of stuff that we're looking at. We've taken uh, ICU, we've done a lot of research with it. We're now looking at all the academic research to understand what's going on when children go into VR. And a lot of it is probably exactly the same as adults. Um, but what we have the opportunity to do is make sure we design these by... Um, by better design, we can make experience for, for kids. And we need to work with the industry and the manufacturers to make sure that the headsets, etc., are designed for them. There are some differences. The headsets can be very heavy on young kids. We found when we were doing ICU that we often, it was the parents who would do the calibration, and we'd hand it to the kids, and then immediately they had to put their head up like that because it was calibrated for a, you know, a different eye line. So these are all things that we can work with. At the moment... Um, it's still very early days, and so what I'd urge is anyone who's in this, in this sector is that um, we talk, share your experiences, and also keep pushing for more research. I just want to pick up on a couple of things that have, have been said just really quickly. So that's really interesting about movement in VR and how children really experience experience the 360-degree spherical space, with the exception of the child wedging their face against the wall. It kind of defeats the point of having the headset on your face, I think, obviously. But, um, but I'm like that. I, I, I move around a lot in VR, and I had a similar experience, too. I fell up, and I have to see a lot of VR because I curate VR for a, a festival. So, oops. so it's really embarrassing when I fall on my ass. But I fell on my ass watching a documentary about um, someone in solitary confinement. They sat on the bed, and I went, I went to sit down next to them and fell on my ass. Um, and so, you know, this brand new medium is, is so powerful, it's so immersive, and it's really exciting, and there's still a lot of hype about it, but we're, we're right to be sitting down now and being cautious and, and talking about not just the safety, safety for children, but what, what kind of content is appropriate for children, and what children are gonna get out of VR. 
So my experience um, in VR is I used to work at the BBC and um, I produced a VR documentary for the BBC. Uh, it wasn't this one, but back in 2015, the BBC's first experimentation with VR was um, a, a project called War of Words, a very simple Google Cardboard experience um, around uh, a, a war poem from the First World War made by BDH in Bristol. And it was an experiment, and it, it, it did incredibly well. I think something like a million downloads um, from Spotlight Stories, I think it might have been. And what was interesting is watching people interact with this. A lot of people, the first time that they'd ever done uh, any kind of virtual reality and feeling really affected. I mean, the poem is affecting anyway. It's, you know, we're still in the, in, in the period of the centenary for World War I. But even children, and it was shown to quite young children all the way down to about eight or nine, were really affected and wanted to learn more. And then from there, the BBC went on to make a piece called ScanLab, which was a web VR experience, like early days for web VR. And this was an experience in which you could go into the catacombs of Rome or you could go into the Pantheon, an incredible learning tool. We moved on uh, in 2016 to the BBC and, uh, and made a piece called We Wait with Ardman, Lorna from Ardman's down here. Um, go and talk to her about it. Uh, it's, an amazing, it's an amazing film. Um, it charts the journey of a migrant family from Turkey to Cyprus. Yeah. And it's incredibly polygonic, so it looks quite childlike. But adults and younger children, well, youngish children who, who experienced the film were really taken in. And um, there's a lot, well, I guess we'll probably talk about this with VR, there's a lot to be talked about in terms of the kind of illusions of embodiment. And this is a really interesting embodiment experience because you have the perspective of a refugee. Even when you look down, you can see your kind of polygonic legs. And that level of immersion is really affecting. When you're on the waves doing the crossing, if you, slight spoiler, I'm going to tell you about it. When you're on the waves doing the crossing, it's incredibly powerful. The voice, the testimony of the people who, who went through this experience, but also the physical effect. And locomotion is a really aff affecting thing in VR. And especially, I think, for children who, who you, you're right, need some context before you go into an experience like that. And then the BBC made uh, its kind of big hitter uh, called Home Space Walk with Rewind. I think there's some guys from Rewind here. Um, this took you into space, um, and you, you were journeying around the International Space Station. You could jetpack back inside. And that was a complete delight for kind of audiences of all ages. And then finally, the, um, the, uh, the project I was involved with, I was the senior producer at the BBC, and I think Mark Atkin from Crossover uh, is here, who we worked with, and Vertov, a, a, a company in Australia. And this documentary that we made was, um, was a history documentary. And it was made for an adult audience, but actually we ended up showing it to a lot of children. We went to the Festival of Education with this, with this project. So, uh, so we made the piece in 2016, and it's, it's still doing the circuit now uh, around festivals and events, conferences. Um, but we showed it, immediately after finishing it, we showed it at Sheffield Dockfest, which is obviously part of my journey to then becoming the curator at Dockfest. And we had a wide range of audiences come through it and incredible feedback. And then we went on to have a residency at the National Theatre and the Imperial War Museum. And those are, are, are public spaces that are, are visited by a wide range of uh, different people. And particularly in the Imperial War Museum, we found that uh, younger audiences really engage with it and then would want to go on a, a further journey. We want to learn more. We did a quick survey while we were there. I think we had about 400 uh, respondents. And the engagement with the subject 
was incredible. You know, the fact retention um, of, of all ages was really impressive. And of course, there was an increased kind of empathy and desire to learn about the kind of personal story, which I thought was very interesting. The majority of people who went through the experience either wanted, when they're in the Imperial War Museum, to visit some physical objects or wanted to then go online to learn more. So as an educational tool, I think VR is incredible. And we, we, we talked a lot about like the risks and, and the fears that we all have. And I think a lot of that comes from when you see those images of a child, in like that, that tiny girl with a giant giant black plastic headset. We're so afraid of that because we can't see the child's face. We can't see their eyes. All we're thinking about is the device. But we're not thinking about what the child is seeing or what they're experiencing or what they might be gaining from that experience. And I think that's something we should talk about. Um, so uh, I made that documentary and now uh, it showed at DocFest and now I'm the curator of DocFest. And um, we show a wide range of, of VR and interactive content. This year we showed um, a piece of, uh, by The Guardian called First Impressions in which you became a baby and saw through the eyes of a, of a child. Um, we showed content in a dome. So that was a social VR experience. Uh, we had in little individual 360 video documentaries that we showed in a little TP. We showed some really challenging content, like the one in the bottom left corner, Blindfold, which is about enforced <coughs> interrogation. But we also showed content that was accessible to, um, to children. We showed a piece called Mundaruku, which was a, um, a, a 360 degree video uh, film about the Amazon. But the difference with this was that it was a multi-sensory experience. So you would sit in this kind of giant egg-like structure, a canopy would descend, then you would hear and watch the film whilst wearing a sub-pack so it would vibrate, and then there was a sensory technician doing this kind of magical dance around you with smells and heat and wind and handing you objects. And one of my favorite memories of the exhibition uh, was we'd have a long queue, we'd open the doors, and people would run in. And Dylan's son <laughs> was one of the people queuing. And he ran in. He just, he just legged it into the exhibition space and then did this really kind of complicated shimmy <laughs> through this very narrow space to run straight towards Mundaruku because he'd, he'd heard about it. He wanted this multi-sensory experience. And I think, you know, the expectation for kids in VR, I mean, yes, it's new, and, you, and, and onboarding is incredibly important, but they throw themselves into it. On that point about um, onboarding, so we have, uh, we have invigilators through, for all of our experiences. And when we talk to them at the, at, at the kind of beginning of the festival, we talk about um, the people who come to see the work as visitors, and how do you treat a visitor when they come to their home, your home? You treat them really well. Um, there should be a, a journey of context, which is the onboarding bit, in which you tell people what it is, what's going to happen, how, how to use it if it's uh, interactive, experience in which they have their own experience, and then reflection, which they can then interface with a human being again, either to decompress or talk or find out more. Like With Easter Rising, everybody wanted to find out more about the history. And we also have a, a summit and a marketplace dedicated to uh, helping people with interactive projects. And I wanted to talk about our commission this year. So um, there's only one logo on there. Sorry, Alex, but there should be two. Um, this is a piece called Future Aleppo uh, that we commissioned from Alex Pearson, who's in the audience, and a company called Marshmallow Laser Feast. And this is just an incredible story about a child that I think is in, in many ways really VR for children. So this is the story of a 13-year-old boy called Mohammed Katesh, 
who um, fled Syria. But whilst he, was, uh, whilst he was still living in Aleppo, he started to build a model of the city around him as it was being destroyed. And when his father found him building this model on, the, I think, the roof of their apartment building, which is not a safe place to be anywhere, but certainly not Aleppo, he said, what are you doing? He said, well, they're destroying it, so I'm, I'm preserving it, I'm rebuilding it. And then they had to flee to Turkey. The model, I think, was destroyed. And Alex met Mohammed, I think, in a refugee camp. No, somewhere else. Tell me later. Uh, he met Mohammed, and they, they did this workshop together. They rebuilt the model. And then um, Alex uh, used bare conductive paint to, to make it an interactive piece. So the model you see there, um, there are little, little black spots that you can touch, and it plays um, sounds, atmospheric sounds from Aleppo. So that's part of preserving the city. And then we commissioned Alex and Marshmallow Laserfees to make a kind of complimentary VR experience in which you would see this model, then sit down, put the headset on, and hear his story, and be taken into the city streets, and move around all the buildings that are so important to him. This is a story of, uh, of one boy's desire to preserve his, the place where he lives, but it's so relevant to children all over the place. You know, he dreams one day of, of becoming an architect and returning home to Aleppo to rebuild the city. But he also dreams of sharing his experience in making this model with other children so that they could create models of their own cities. And Future Aleppo showed at, um, at DocFest and then went all the way to CMC, which is also in Sheffield, by the way, went all the way to the Children's Media Conference. Um, next, it's going to FACT, the arts venue in Liverpool, and right now it's also on tour. We've got a kind of South American tour happening at the moment. It's, it's going to Brazil. So uh, this was a piece of content that I just wanted to talk about because I think that blending of physical and virtual is really important as well. And kids got so much out of this, seeing the model and then the VR experience, and then going back to the model. Uh, so I think, uh, uh, so here's, here's an image which evokes a different response, I believe. So the black headset, terrifying. But there's something about the child with the Google Cardboard on their face, which is like, oh, yeah, they must be having a little adventure to... Egypt in their classroom, that's cool. And, and whatever we think about whether we should be experimenting in this space with children and virtual reality, Google have done it and are doing it. And I think, should, I think they gave out like a million cardboards last year in the UK. So the last thing I wanted to talk about was, uh, was the experience of VR for most people is location-based and will be for a long time, I think. You know, the, the adoption rates, the consumer rates of buying headsets and the awareness you can see is, is way behind. But, um, but public spaces that are dedicated to enlightening and educating us are getting into this. That should say 2015, actually. The, the British Museum had their Bronze Age experience, um, I think, this year, in fact. So I've got my dates wrong, apologies. Um, the amazing Games Company Preloaded made the Hadley Page experience for the Science Museum in their brand-new Hadid um, architected uh, section of the Science Museum. And everybody's, you know fantasy grandfather, Attenborough, has been all over this for ages. First Life and the Great Barrier Reef um, at the Natural History Museum and Attenborough with the dinosaurs for the BBC. And I hear rumor of another Attenborough thing that he's doing it's with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so so these, you know, these organizations, these spaces are there doing it already. And although, of course, they're all looking to the manufacturers to advise as to what age children should be allowed to engage with virtual reality. Children are coming in through the doors with their parents and engaging with VR. And my last bit was 
was to talk about the shift between, say, the public spaces and a more consumer-based experience, and to talk about what Mark is saying, devolving it to the parents. So IMAX VR, I think there's maybe two or three locations in America where this is happening, but this is, is going to be a big part of um, the creation of kind of blockbuster VR and the experience of VR for lots of families who go to cinemas. And you, I don't know if you can see the content listings there. You can. So there's, there's some content there that's quite obviously aimed at a younger audience. And even the kind of tagline, you know, what do you want to be when you show up, makes you think about adults as kids, really. And then when I looked through their FAQs, this is what I found that they were saying about children. The under 18 years of age, you have to, you have, to uh, have a parent or guardian complete a waiver. Seven to 12, the parent or guardian needs to be there with you. And no children under the age of seven. So that's quite a hard and, hard and fast rule. But I think that's really interesting to debate, you know, is that, is that right? Is that, is that really enough information, IMAX VR, to just say, well, you, you decide when you turn up parents. I know nothing about the headsets. I don't really know too much about the content. It's hard to judge the quality of the onboarding. But I just wanted to leave that hanging there as a, that's the future and it's coming. What are the <coughs> questions that we should be asking of organizations like IMAX? Thank you. Okay, well, um, so that sort of leads on quite nicely to, uh, to the next talk on the potential health and safety implications of virtuality use for, for children. And I'm going to focus on children, and I'm going to focus on visual health, uh, but most of the sort of issues that I'll talk about also apply to adulthood as well. So uh, before we get on to virtual reality, so uh, Dylan and Mark sort of touched on this, I want to consider uh, existing technologies and the potential implications of uh, <laughs> iPads, tablets, sort of uh, iPhones on children's visual health. Um, and sort of it's something that intuitively parents have known for many, many years is, uh, is that sustained close screen viewing and children don't really mix well. Um, and there's a, there's a myopia, so that short-sightedness sort of epidemic happening right now. There's a, in fact, it's estimated that approximately 50% of the world's population will be myopic, short-sighted by approximately 2050, by the time that we think virtual reality is going to be everywhere. Um, and unfortunately for short-sightedness, uh, wearing a pair of glasses, like I'm doing right now, isn't a quick fix. Um, myopia actually increases the risk factor of developing uh, numerous other eye diseases as well. Um, and it is putting huge strains on the uh, uh, health systems across the world, particularly the NHS here. Um, so the million-dollar question then is whether virtual reality is really going to exacerbate these potential sort of uh, problems and increase the rates of myopia uh, above and beyond existing technology. And no doubt, many of you will have seen sort of headlines or pictures like this, that virtual reality is going to uh, kill you and sort of uh, destroy the future of your children. Um, and this one's from uh, Wired. Um, and there's, of course, this is a, a bit of scaremongering sort of a Daily Mail type of sort of headlines. Uh, but there is a bit of evidence uh, sort of behind some of this. And I want to talk to you uh, about some of that evidence and give you an idea of where people are coming from when they, when they write headlines uh, such as this. So um, let's have a look at the evidence. Um, so Mark sort of uh, gave a nice introduction to some of the research uh, that's happened in the past. Um, but virtual reality sort of uh, uh, much sort of further past, virtual reality has been around 
for quite a long time in various different sort of guises. So you see the, uh, the headset uh, over there. Um, we have approximately sort of 25 years of virtual reality research, particularly around sort of visual health. And um, the very first sort of generations of systems uh, like this one pictured here uh, caused quite a little bit of uh, commotion. Um, it's because studies instead of uh, conducted by vision scientists, some of them working with us at University of Leeds, uh, demonstrated that uh, users have a very high risk of developing sort of eye strain and headaches following very short-term virtual reality viewing, and that's, that's with adults. Um, so what was remarkable about this, of course, as I pointed out, is that all displays have uh, problems and cause risks uh, for, a, for a person's visual health. Um, but what virtual reality does, and this is what makes it stand out, and this is where some of the concerns come from, is that virtual reality places unnatural pressures on the user's visual system. And I'm going to give you a, a sort of one canonical example of how that uh, might work and what we mean by unnatural. Um, <clears throat> and these sort of, um, so I'm describing sort of research happening 25 years ago, and you might think, well, because uh, technology has moved on. We've got uh, greater sort of a quality of sort of graphics, computing power, exponential sort of increases. Um, but some of these fundamental issues still persist. And if we're going to move on uh, from these potential difficulties, we need to be able to uh, address these sort of head on. So uh, let me talk you through, let me give you a very quick tutorial uh, on uh, sort of a vision. So our eyes have a, several different muscles that allow us to see um, from various different distances and angles. We have one set of eye muscles that ensures that both our eyes are pointing towards the same object. And if we don't, well, we will get this sort of double vision kind of thing. You can sort of simulate it by sort of pointing finger out and trying to look in two different directions. Um, so the idea behind this sort of a, a system known as the virgin system is that your eyes sort of uh, converge as the object gets closer, or they'll diverge as the object gets further away. And that sort of a uh, system uh, is developed um, relatively sort of early on, sort of uh, eight, to eight to 10 years of age, you'll, uh, you'll be pretty uh, uh, comfortable uh, with your virgin system. We also have something else. Uh, uh, when we see uh, blur, uh, and we, we don't see much of blur since the 1990s, uh, but uh, we also have a set of muscles inside each eye which adjust the focus of the eye's lens. So we, we have blurry images and we focus, a uh, process of, uh, known as accommodation, and that allows us to see Clearly, so we've got these two systems, vergence and accommodation. And um, these are what we call neurally cross-linked. So again, Mark talked about sort of some of the neural networks, neural pathways involved. Uh, and these neural cross-links uh, emerge because in natural environments, these two are strongly correlated with one another. So the focal distance and the, the vergence distance uh, have a very strong sort of a positive relationship with one another. Um, but this tight coupling is disrupted when you start viewing stereoscopic displays. And this is stereoscopic displays sort of uh, from Google Cardboard, from full head mounted displays, 3D TVs even. And that's because the focal distance is fixed to wherever you have the headset or the, or the 3D TV. Whereas the vergence distance, this is objects that are being positioned in various different sort of locations, varies uh, as a function of the, uh, the images being presented. And uh, this is known as the vergence accommodation conflict. It's something that we've, uh, we've known about for many, many years. A large amount of research has been conducted on this, showing that this is a contributor <coughs> to eye strain 
um, and uh, visual fatigue. Um, so that presents a bit of a challenge then for virtual reality systems, because 25 years later, we still have systems that uh, have this virgence accommodation problem. But I don't want to dwell too much on the, on the bad side. The good news is that we have 25 years of research, and we have these problems that we actually know about these problems. And that really gives us an opportunity to be able to engineer systems and deliver content that might navigate, circumvent these known issues. And that's really what they are, known issues, published work um, in reputable sort of uh, peer-reviewed journals. And we really want to fix these problems as well, because as you all know, there's huge potential for virtual reality. And we think that actually, by addressing these issues head on, you might well be able to open up uh, opportunities for virtual reality, which simply didn't materialize 25 years earlier in that first generation of virtual reality. And then we come on to the possibility, so this is back to my first slide, is, a, is that potentially virtual reality might well even be good for children's eyesight in a, in a particular context. So, for example, with our TVs, our monitors, our tablets, we have a fixed sort of location where we, uh, uh, we uh, view our content. And that places what's called steady state pressures on uh, the accommodation of emergence systems. But what we could potentially do with virtual reality is we can present that information at any possible distance. So we could present the information much further out, uh, allowing those muscles to relax and be sort of a, uh, and, and reduce the uh, visual fatigue on those systems. Mm -hmm. So, uh, excuse me, I'm not sure what that is. Um, the other potential possibility is that we could switch off sort of stereoscopic sort of uh, displays. We could just have um, information coming from sort of uh, one source. And uh, we did some research around sort of using stereo, turning stereo on and off, and seeing the impact that that might have on people's interactions uh, with the environment. We were working with, a, with dental surgeons, and we were working on a virtual reality simulator, looking at their, uh, uh, the precision of their drilling. We found that actually if you turn that off, that, that sort of uh, substantially impairs their, uh, their ability to be able to drill appropriately. Uh, but the question then is, when you're delivering content for children, do you really need that information about depth uh, when you're watching, say, uh, Peppa Pig, for example? Probably not. Um, what we also think is that virtual reality might be able to promote naturalistic interactions with the environment. We all know the problems associated with keyboard uh, and monitor use. Uh, the ergonomics just aren't good for us. Humans weren't designed to sit in front of a computer or interact with a tablet uh, in the way that we do. And that contributes to um, uh, the risk of developing neck and back strain in adulthood. And that also affects the economy. So we have hundreds and uh, millions of lost work days uh, in the UK alone uh, due to these sort of problems. And actually, if we can open up new ways of interacting with computers, that might well help reduce those, uh, those potential problems. So I want to sort of wrap this up very quickly, is that, well, of course, there clearly are potential risks. And it would be complacent of us to ignore those. Uh, and sort of uh, the point Mark was making about sort of responsible sort of development of content, I think that's a, that's a key uh, sort of issue. Um, of course, we can mitigate these risks through an understanding of natural human interactions with the environment. So we have a lot of evidence in our field in cognitive psychology, in vision science. We know how individuals interact with, a, with, a, with natural environments. And we can then identify where that sort of goes astray. 
we can intelligently design content. So in the way that Turner, uh, our sort of Turner and Dubit are, are working on, is actually think very carefully about the ways in which we present information. So when, where, how should you present virtual reality uh, content? And then the third point, and we've started doing a little bit of this, but far more work needs to be done uh, around this, is to monitor the short-term physiological impact on children um, whilst they're using virtual reality. Uh, and this will give us an inference on the long-term, potential long-term consequences of VR. So we don't need 10-year longitudinal studies. We can identify very precisely what those consequences are on a short-term basis and give us a pretty good uh, basis to, uh, to make some predictions about the, uh, the long-term effects. And um, <coughs> one of the reasons why I'm here, I guess, is that here at the University of, well, the University of Leeds, we have the infrastructure, we've got a commitment to virtual reality. So we've invested over 30 million pounds in VR tech over the past few years. And we also have the resources and know-how to be able to investigate these issues. So we have a gateway into one of the largest developmental studies being carried out in the world today. Uh, it's known as the, the Born, in Bradford, Born in Bradford project, where we're tracking 13,500 children as they grow up. And virtual reality is going to be integral to their futures. And we want to ensure that that technology is safe um, to ensure a, a healthy future for them. So I want to end on a, on a positive, <coughs> is that I think if we can put these uh, sort of issues together, we can put these sort of risks and actually mitigate for them through sensible sort of approaches and responsible approaches to VR development, then actually I think we can help realize the potential of virtuality in ways that simply haven't happened sort of a, uh, with the previous generations. So um, that's it for me. So uh, thank you very much for listening. We have to take questions. Well, uh, thank you, everyone. Brilliant presentations. We're a little bit over time. Um, so I don't know if we're going to go straight to questions or if we want to have a bit of a chat about. Yeah, it's probably best. Do you want us to go straight? I can't see. Do you want us to go straight to questions? Yeah, okay. Yeah. okay. Sure. First of all, I feel slightly guilty about my children. <laughs> <laughs> but hopefully, there's still time to turn it around. Um, Do you allow I, them to take the headset off ever? That's well, you know, occasionally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I guess my, my question to everybody um, is, what's the sort of best possible outcome from this? And maybe actually, Faisal, you know, given that you've done all this research, where do you, where do you see... The sort of possibilities and the opportunities, first of all. Yeah, absolutely. So I, so I touched on that on the last slide. Um, is that I see that virtual reality could open up new ways of interacting with computers, um, fundamentally changing the way that we, we, we uh, work with these sort of uh, technologies. And that will open up new ways, in fact, sort of ways that we simply don't, uh, we can't possibly imagine right now. So we know that children will find new ways of sort of interacting with environments that we simply couldn't predict before. But ultimately, uh, the key thing there is, is about sort of naturalistic sort of interactions with the environment. So there's much fewer sort of uh, physiological pressures actually being hunched over in a sort of a posture in front of a desk. That, that's not good for you. And virtual reality could really open up new ways of exploring uh, sort of tech. So, uh, so I'll give you another example so from, a, um, from our research uh, at the university is um, we are focused on big data sets. These are not children, but adults. We're looking at big data sets, and we're analyzing these big data sets to find, uh, uh, well, to find sort of patterns within them to be able to understand the phenomena. Uh, and one of the fundamental problems is actually we have no idea of how to sort of go about sort of interacting with this large volume of data. And one of the sort of uh, 
uh, sort of pieces of work being done by our computer science department is to use virtual reality uh, as a way of sort of navigating through these huge streams uh, of data sets. Um, and that, again, that opens up sort of educational opportunities as well. So, so uh, Dan sort of talked about that is actually this interaction, this immersive sort of nature uh, improves um, sort of retention uh, and also an understanding of the, uh, the, the world that you're working with. So I think that that's, there's huge opportunities in, the, in those sort of areas. Uh, Dylan, what do you think? Where, where can this go in a positive way that, that people can take home? I mean, I suppose, uh, again, struck by uh, your slides um, of looking at all the kind of different ways that it's going at the moment. So in terms of health, although your examples, I think some of them were with adults around PTSD and various things, you know, so we already know that health is one of the things. In terms of uh, gaming content as, as well, so this kind of mixed realities I think is is very exciting um, potentials definitely as you said for for museums uh, and theater and different types of entertainment as well um, and of course in in terms of education as well so um, I did hear once uh, a couple of people saying that when Google um, was going to schools yay this means we don't have to go on field trips anymore and fill in loads of paperwork <laughs> and so I hope it's not that, <laughs> but that what we can still do with children in reality, we still do, but what we can't do in reality, so such as going into we see you, you know, you cannot actually go in and be chased in real life by a giant sandwich. <laughs> and so I think it opens up, you know, this, these possibilities to explore. So some of the concerns about crossing uh, kind of imaginative reality as it were, and being able to be fully immersed in that which other tech doesn't allow, I think is really exciting. Um, we talked again about children sort of maybe mixing up the two. Um, and I also see this sometimes as, as an interesting thing to explore further too. Um, I think children do that anyway in, in that kind of crossover of, you know, what's real or what's not real? Where am I going to believe or stop believing? You know, how much... Do you want to keep certain beliefs alive? I mean, we all know that with Father Christmas, the tooth fairy and things, you know, you hang on to the desire for that. Uh, last night, uh, Faso and I were talking again about uh, Pokemon Go, and I'd seen a researcher present about Pokemon Go, and one of the things that she presented from the findings that really grasped me was that children were saying, finally, we have this technology that can see Pokemon. So they believed, you know, Pokemon were already in the environment. You know, they believed that from the stories that they had read, from the programs that they had played. And now we had developed a way of actually seeing them. So how far is that a bad thing or a good thing of imagination? I think is really interesting as well. I think deve developing imagination is somewhat one of the things, you know, mm. very, very key to what we do at Carter Network and Boomerang. It's sort of imagination, is stimulating imagination is part of our mantra. And, you know, traditional media is a bit spoon-fed some of the mm -hmm. time. You know, it, it's a narrative story. It runs in a linear time frame. And I think digital media has generally been opening up opportunities. There's great examples of open-ended play, and we know the benefits of open-ended play. Mm -hmm. If we can bring that into uh, to worlds that children can really inhabit and can really explore, I think there's huge potential there. And I think, you know, the, the fact that we're having conversations about actually a lot of it's about the, the hardware right now and the, 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 the current um, application <coughs> is 
good because I'm hoping that it will put more pressure on the next generations. We were already, mm. you know, Magic Leap's been hidden for quite a while, suddenly resurfaced, and they're talking about, you know, maybe in the next six months we'll start seeing uh, glasses, you know, which aren't the clunky headsets, yeah. aren't going to weigh down your head, aren't going to cut your eye, make sure you can't see someone's eyes. And it, once we get to that, that then starts making it both social, exploratory, <coughs> imaginative, um, and hopefully a little bit you know, less alienating from the real world. Um, and I think that, that could be a huge uh, benefit for kids. Dan? Uh, my interest is in, in storytelling, and quite specifically, I guess, non-fiction storytelling. And I think that's a really exciting place for virtual reality right now. Uh, there, are, there are some really incredible experiences, VR experiences, or stories, or films, if you want to call them films, that are being made that, um, that help you engage with the, story, the, the stories of the real world and the stories of real people and history and science. That, that's a profound thing, I think, for children. And it's a really powerful tool. And when I witness 7 plus, 13 plus children um, interact with those VR experiences, I think that's a great thing, and they come out. And actually, I think the example of like Google Expeditions and all the, the 360 headsets, I think kids are going to come out of that, and then they're, they're going to say to the teacher, right, where can we go to the pyramids? They're not going to be like, I've done the pyramids now. Then they're going to want to engage more, and the, and the, and the, 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 the teachers are going to go, shit. <laughs> we've got Googling, and now we've all got to go, we've got to, go to Stonehenge next week. So I think it, it amplifies <coughs> in, engagement. But I think your point about play as a narrative tool is really important. We've seen that with, with kids in, in games and, and apps, and that's really important. Then have next generation for me, the next generation of non-fiction storytelling has to have more presence, more agency, more play, more degrees of freedom and, and movement, more meaningful interactions that are balanced with story that, that, that still deliver educational, powerful narrative content. Cool. Okay, well, I think we've probably opened up for questions. For if anybody has any questions, there's one there. There's a mic coming. Oh, two mics coming. Wow. In stereo. Hi. Um, Sonia Livingstone from LSE. Uh, that was a fantastic presentation, so I've got a ton of questions, and I will just ask one. Um, so I'm thinking about the risk side, and I'm thinking particularly about content rather than the not, not to um, deny the really interesting evidence about eyesight. Um, so the claim for documentary was just made that it's more real. It's a way of getting really real. Um, what are your thoughts about horror, about violence, about aggressive content, about, yeah. you know, because on television we've always said, well, children enjoy it, they get into it, they just take it so far, but they know it's not real. Yeah. Now you're kind of crossing that boundary and yeah, you I want to say it's real but isn't that going to be terrifying we know the kind of content children might have a lot of access to won't always be you know yeah. public service beautiful aesthetic well i think the, the the areas of concern are the technology the experiences and the duration and within the experiences you've got content <coughs> what kind of content children should be experiencing in vr and I think there's a parallel with what kind of content children should be experiencing in games and television, to be honest, really. The phenomenal reality you experience in VR is really powerful and really immersive. And I, and I think you're right. There is, you know, we talk a lot about you know, if it's in 360 or if it's in VR, is it more real? I think that all depends on the treatment. 
really. I mean, like my, the film that I made with Oscar and Mark is, um, is a real story, but a quite unreal presentation, yet people are really sucked into it and feel very emotively connected to it. So that's about the judgment of the storyteller and what you put in front of your audience and thinking about who your audience is and whether you're making a film that is for an adult audience or for a family audience. And then in, in terms of kind of qualifying or quantifying the, the, the content, um, that's about VR and ethics and, and also ratings. So I think ethically as the makers, we have a responsibility to think about how, how we're treating our visitors because you've got to balance your, your story so that you still get your, your narrative across and you use all the tricks of immersion. And let's face it, VR is all about manipulation of perception or your body or your mind in a way. But to balance that for the, for the maker. And the other thing is for the experiences to have ratings and for those ratings to be a bit more sophisticated perhaps than they're just like UPG because you should be thinking about content, you should be thinking about locomotion, you should be thinking about comfort, duration, what device it's being facilitated on. So I think that's a whole new world of BBFC, ESRB consideration. Just to add to that, there is a piece in a report that was uh, written by the PEGI rating system. So I had a really interesting conversation with them, and they were sort of saying they've been, you know, obviously tracking as we all have the emergence of VR and wondering how their rating system holds up to VR. At the moment, they don't see any content that wouldn't allow content to be rated in the same <coughs> way. Um, I think I was saying to them that, you know, there's always this thing as well as a child of like, you know, watching Doctor Who and hiding behind the sofa and, and things like that. And I still believe, you know, you can close your eyes in a, in a VR headset. Um, I think sound, mm. the potential of sound in VR, we haven't really touched on that, is maybe something that needs further consideration. So in the blue where the children were under the water, there's a bit where a huge great big whale comes, comes past. And the whale's beautiful, you know, and... Um, when I was watching children in it, I actually couldn't hear the sound of what they were listening to, and they were kind of flinching, and I thought, well, that's, that's interesting. But when I went back to look at the data, you know, it has almost like that Jaws <laughs> suspense music built up, whereas actually, you know, obviously it wasn't necessarily designed for children, but how does sound make us feel in that space as well? Um, and another thing I was talking to uh, the contact at Peggy about is that in that experience, children are constantly swimming. You don't need to swim, <laughs> but you know, how does that affect your ability? So in, in Doctor Who, you, again, you know, I might have done this as a, as a child, but if I've got to keep swimming, maybe that's hard, harder to do. So yeah, uh, def definitely some further thought for how does VR enter this space of ratings, whether it's for film or for games that already exists that definitely still needs to be there as well. I just want to pick up on Dylan's. I, I slightly disagree with Dylan about the um, that you can shut your eyes. I think this is one of the things which is probably one of the biggest things mm. is the self-regulation. In the same way, people don't tend to walk out of a cinema yeah. because yeah. you've sort of made that commitment. There seems to be something that when you put your headset on, mm. partly because you you are you've got it's so many senses being um, uh, affected. You, I, I know I've been in the situation. I'm I'm less inclined to turn to take the headset off, mm. whereas you can have that break in attention on a sort of traditional TV media very quickly. <coughs> so I think the next, you know, giving permission to time out yourself will become a really important thing. I think on the, the, the you know, the, the more 
adult content. Um, I think we've got to get to a stage where there's much clearer, transparent um, sharing about what the media is. I think with the games industry, we sort of we, we put the ratings on, but most parents would still seem quite happy to let their kid uh, go and play an 18 game um, without really thinking that that game had a rating for a reason. And I think this time we've got an opportunity mm. to actually rebalance it. Actually say, you know, we're making quality mm. entertainment. It's immersive, but, you know, these are the reasons why you may or may not want to do it. And different children will have different sensibilities. Um, so I think that would be my hope out of it, that we get to something which is actually a bit more robust, I suppose. <coughs> that said, there are a lot of people in the games and sort of academic side of games who will still say that correlation and causation are not the same and therefore violence in games does not lead to violent, <laughs> violent people and we've got to take that into consideration as well. But it doesn't hurt to be a bit more um, proportionate and sensible in, you know, as, you as you lay out your stool. Um, and, okay. All right. Okay. Well, that that was it for questions. Sorry. <laughs> Good luck. Uh, there are some. Uh, you can tweet uh, tweet us with questions. I'm sure we can answer all your questions in 140 characters or less. Uh, there's a lot more in here. So you may get read this. You may get your questions answered. Thank you very much, and thank you to the panel. Brilliant. Okay. Tweet.